Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In 2019, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Marie Ivanovich became what no career diplomat wants or expects to become, an issue in America's domestic politics, targeted by President Trump and his political apparatchiks, Apparently because she stood in the way of their efforts to smear Joe Biden, Yovanovitch was summarily dismissed and became a star witness in Trump's first impeachment trial. But if that's all you know about her, you don't know nearly enough. About her extraordinary life story and her distinguished 33-year tour of duty in the Foreign Service, she's written a book about it called Lessons from the Edge, and we sat down this week to talk about her story and the current events in Ukraine. Here's that conversation. Ambassador, it is so good to see you. We were talking before we went on the air. You are in the midst of a big book tour for your wonderful book, Lessons from the Edge. So I'm sure in some ways you're you're all talked out by now, but I'm I'm happy to see you because it's such a momentous time to get together. Yeah, no, it really is. And it's a, a pleasure to be able to have a discussion with you, David. So everybody's talking to you about Ukraine and Russia uh, because of your obvious expertise as a diplomat. But you also must look at this through the eyes of the child of people who uh, were immigrants from refugees, really, from Eastern Europe. And uh, talk, talk to me about that, your family's journey and how that has shaped you. Yeah. So my parents uh, were incredible in many ways and in other ways. Their journey was very typical. Uh, my father um, left the Soviet Union when he was very small, grew up in Yugoslavia, was a uh, German prisoner of war, um, and then lived out the, he escaped and lived out the rest of the war in France and then ultimately ended up in Canada. And my mom was. But let me just stop on, let, let me stop on him for a second because he was also orphaned. Is that, I mean, this is a really incredible story. Orphaned very young, uh, and his father died almost immediately when they got to Yugoslavia. Uh, and he had his whole own tragic story. And um, his mother put him in uh, a school for cadets, um, for Russian cadets. This was an expatriate community in Yugoslavia for Russians. And um, cadets were generally the sons of noblemen, not that I come from a noble family, uh, who were the, the Tsar's own guard. And um, all of the people that were in this school, they were sort of in this Russian community, and they thought that they were going to go back to to the Soviet Union and, um, you know, liberate the country and recreate Russia. Um, that obviously did not happen. Um, instead, um, he, he went on to the Yugoslav Military Academy and uh, was um, captured by the Germans almost, uh, almost immediately. And, and yet my father, you know, persevered. He had great faith. He had lots of talent as a musician. Um, and he was able to um, to somehow survive uh, and, and, you know, ultimately in the United States even thrive. Um, he, so my mom, she grew up in uh, Nazi Germany as a stateless person, uh, which is not, I mean, it was, it was better than being Jewish, but not much. And um, so they didn't have any protections. And her father was also Russian. He had uh, left uh, after the Civil War in Russia. And um, they somehow managed uh, to survive during the Nazi period, but it was touch and go, and they were hungry, hungry nights. And um, my, my grandfather was even called in uh, to the Gestapo and asked to go to the Russian front. Uh, and when he said no, um, then they called in the whole family. I mean, really, there must have been some incredibly 
trying moments when you try to decide what is the right thing to do when you have a family um, and yet you do not want to fight against your compatriots, uh, the Russians. So they were able eventually to make their way to England. My mom immigrated to Canada where she met my father. I was born there and pretty quickly uh, we moved to the United States. And I think my parents kind of exhausted from all that upheaval were really thrilled to put down roots uh, in Connecticut. And they were just grateful to the United States that uh, the U.S. had provided safe haven to us um, as it has to so many immigrants and refugees over over the centuries. And they brought my brother up and myself up to, um, you know, to understand how, how important it was that we live in liberty, uh, that you can prosper in the United States, that they were able to worship the way they wanted, um, that they could say whatever they wanted. These are things that I think we often take for granted. Um, but if you've lived under an autocrat, uh, you know how precious they are. And um, so they kind of instilled that in us and um, told us that we needed to give back because we were lucky. You and I share something in a small way because my father was a, uh, an immigrant from Eastern Europe from actually what is now part of Ukraine, Kotin, Hotin, is that the name of the town? In Western, yeah, in Western, mm-hmm. yeah, in, we- in West, in the Western uh, part of the country, um, he and uh, he saw awful things. He he was there during the pogroms, and he he never talked about it. Very very mm-hmm. rarely. I only learned a lot about it after he died. Yeah, the fact that he didn't talk about it reflected how painful those memories were. Stepping over bodies. Uh, to try and find some bread and uh, having his home blown up, which is when they finally left. And I'm, I'm wondering whether you, I, I understand, because we felt it, look, I'm, I was the senior advisor to the president of the United States, uh, and I'm one generation in, you know, and so the gratitude is clear. What about the scars of that experience? And do you think your parents felt that? I mean, and how did it manifest itself? They definitely felt that. And in some ways, they passed it on to me. I don't know if you feel that way uh, yeah. about your father. But in some ways, I, I, I carry some of that burden. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that I understand exactly what it was like to live during that time. But, um, you know, my parents also, they wanted our childhood to be a carefree, happy childhood. They didn't want to um, talk about the past because, A, it was painful for them, but they didn't want uh, us to be, well, I'm going to use that word again, burdened by it. Mm-hmm. But one of the regrets I have is that I didn't ask enough. Uh, and uh, I really wish I knew more about my father's early years. Um, I mean, he told some stories, um, but it was, it was rare when we would get him mm. talking. My mom was a little bit more of an extrovert. She spoke a little bit more, but not... Not hugely so. And it was really um, more after I was in high school and she had, um, that's when she turned to teaching and she's got a degree in um, German literature and language. And I think it brought the memories back. And so she shared some of them uh, with us, but it was difficult times. My dad uh, ultimately died by suicide. I've talked about that here before. And uh, I always wondered what the scars were. I know. I remember uh, talking to um, Elie Wiesel about Primo Levi, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. said, "You know, he died years later, also by suicide." He said, "But mm-hmm. he really was killed in the death camps." He yeah. said because of of those memories. Let me ask you one other thing about your childhood. You write about and you've talked about what it was like to come and you not be an English speaker at first, and and wanting to fit in, not wanting to right. be the other. Tell me about that as a child, making that adjustment as the sort of family from Eastern Europe, even though you weren't born there, trying to blend it in Kent, Connecticut. Yeah, it was pretty white bread there. And it was, you know, the uh, early 1960s. It wasn't the greatest thing in the world to be uh, from a Russian family. And my mom growing up in Nazi Germany, um, I mean, these were not great connections. And even as a small child, you somehow understand that. We moved from Montreal, where um, my parents had spoken French to each other, but my mom uh, started speaking English uh, to my father so that his English would get up to speed for this new job he was taking on in Kent, Connecticut as a teacher. And um, so we started that switch in Montreal, and, but I still spoke 
German to my mom and Russian to my father. And about a week into um, moving to the United States, I was living next to a family with eight kids. <laughs> and they were like eight little teachers for me. And I came back to my home and I said to my parents, and yeah, I was three. Uh, I said, yeah, not speaking English, uh, mm-hmm. anything except English from now on. And I think my parents had so many other problems. They, they, they were just like, okay, well, whatever. And it's really a shame because I had to relearn Russian and I never, um, never learned German. Uh, and I could have just had it like as a, as a birthright. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, I think that feeling of wanting to fit in is so strong. And I was doing what all kids do. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you spent a lot of your life traveling the world and sort of parachuting into places uh, where you were the other in many ways. That's part of being a diplomat. You go to places that are sometimes unfamiliar to you. And we'll talk about that in a second. How much did the experience of your childhood help you in that regard? Kind of the ability to adjust to places where you, you don't necessarily feel a belonging at first? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I haven't really thought about it in quite that way. But I, I am an introvert. And so I am much happier <laughs> kind of listening. Um, you're not going to know this from this conversation. But I hope I'm much not. Happier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm much happier listening and kind of, you know, thinking a little bit about what people are saying. I'm much happier one-on-one than in a big crowd. And I think that does facilitate kind of learning more about the country that you're in when you have, you know, perhaps some of those deeper connections with individuals and uh, you're listening. It's not just the U.S. on broadcast. Mm-hmm. Your uh, father taught at the school where you went. It was a boarding school. Yeah. That must have been a pain. Uh, that must have been difficult. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. was terrible. You, sort of, you, you can't step out of line too much, I guess, huh? No. And I tried, you know, I was a dutiful daughter just as I was a rules-following diplomat. And so I, I really tried uh, to do my, my best and yeah, not always with great success, but I tried <laughs> because going back to the scars, my parents were always a little bit insecure and they passed that on to me and they were always worried that maybe the, the job would go away and we needed to be careful and kind of, they had a philosophy really of um, hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. And so yeah. there was always that feeling of tentativeness and maybe of being the other and not quite belonging in this very waspy kind of an environment. Boy, that feeling of preparing for the worst and hoping for the best and, and, and that sense of insecurity must have been traumatic later in life when you face this situation, which we'll, we'll talk about more. But when you know the president and his men essentially turned on you, you, the dutiful rules-following diplomat, I can't imagine how unsettling that must have been. It was terrible. I mean, the president of the United States is the most powerful person in the world, and that he would even be spending a minute thinking about me, much less trying to get me fired when he had that in his power to do. They didn't have to launch a smear campaign. They could just have recalled me, Yeah, but they didn't choose that path. We'll get into that, but you went to Princeton, worked your way through Princeton, and then you went to Russia when you graduated. Tell me why you decided to go. I know you studied, you, Russian studies was part of what you did at Princeton, but tell me about your decision to go there because you spent some time there. Yeah, I was there for about a year. So I went initially for a language course and then I got, uh, this was, you know, during the Cold War, so you couldn't just wash up in, in right. uh, the Soviet Union and um, you know, get a job. Yeah. Uh, so I got a, a employment uh, with Canadian diplomats as the nanny to their children. So Alex Haley had just put out the book Roots. So there was this great flowering in America of let's find out about our ancestors and everything else. And, you know, again, being my parents' uh, child, uh, where their Russian background was very important to them, I wanted to see what it was like. I wanted to see if I could meet um, the relatives that were still there. I wanted to uh, find out more about, you know, the other uh, superpower, right? Because uh, I was interested in history and, and, and politics. And uh, so, uh, so I, um, and of course, the other thing is I didn't know 
what to do with my life. And so this seemed like a stopgap kind of a thing. I could kind of figure stuff out. And I'm really glad I went because it was, um, you know, book learning is important and you can learn the theory of um, how how people can be repressed and what it's like to live in an unfree world. But actually being there is is much more educational because you can see it like right up front and viscerally. And I was still not truly in it, right? Because I had an American passport. I could always leave. Whereas, um, you know, the Russians and others that I, I met in, you know, what was then the Russian Republic uh, in, in the Soviet Union, they were stuck. Um, and they somehow had to make the best of a very, very difficult situation. And seeing that um, was really important for me in terms of, you know, my later work. You wrote about visiting an aunt, uh, not an aunt, but a great aunt. My paternal grandfather's sister. Okay. But the essence of it is how frightened they were to commune with you because you were an American and this would bring suspicion down on them. Yeah. Well, you know, it was 1980, 81. Um, the rest of the family uh, didn't want to meet with me. I was just told it was not possible, which I understood as, you know, too, too dangerous. Uh, and so the, this, the, the, the aunt that met with me, I mean, she was in her, in her 80s. And so I guess they felt that that was not going to compromise her or her future in any way. But even she, I mean, um, at, she lived in what was known as a communal apartment, which was an apartment um, that was cut up and a family would have each room. So she had this teeny, teeny little room and she rushed me through the common corridor and, um, you know, closed the door. And she said, you know, speak very softly because she didn't want anybody to know that a foreigner uh, was in her apartment, much less a foreigner who was related to her, much less an American. And it was, it's hard to know how people can live that way. And I think we're seeing a return to that in Russia today as, you know, the outgrowth of um, Putin's policies, but also this, this war of choice against Ukraine. People would be surprised that the, uh, someone who ended up spending 33 years in the Foreign Service and becoming so prominent in our uh, uh, diplomatic history uh, spent her early years uh, in the ad business in New York. Uh, what, what happened there? How, how did you, how did, how did, how did that work? Well, so remember I said, I didn't know what I I wanted to do after college. Yes. (laughs) So I still didn't know what I wanted to do, but, um, I, I, you know, took one of those personality tests and they said, you know, the, the test comes out that actually, you know, you'd be great in publishing, you would be great in advertising and marketing. So, you know, I went to New York, uh, which is just a couple hours from my hometown and I interviewed and I ended up working in, uh, in, in, in an ad agency. And here's, here's the thing I would say, and I say that this not with um, any kind of sarcasm or anything, but that business is not so very different from some of the business of the United States government. Because whether you are um, trying to work a domestic policy or a foreign policy, you need to communicate with stakeholders and you need to um, be effective at it or else it's going to fail. And so that was actually pretty good. I learned a lot. Yeah. I know you had thought about the Foreign Service as a kid, but what made you go back to that idea? So it's actually the war in Granada where I was reading, um, you know, the New York Times on the way to work um, on the subway. And I went into the office and I wanted to talk about it with uh, with my colleagues. And they wanted to talk about, you know, the the um, ad layout that was on um, somebody's desk. And it was just like this little epiphany that, you know, this is not what I should be doing. And so I went back to that original idea of the Foreign Service. And uh, the first place you went was Somalia, Mogadishu. Talk about dropping in to an, a place where you are alien. How is that experience yeah. for a young woman, junior diplomat, in a country that was on the verge of sort of falling apart where corruption was rampant? Yeah. Well, it was really challenging. And so I had joined the Ford Service because I wanted to do policy issues and the political work and so forth. And uh, what I what I was doing in Mogadishu was administrative work. Embassies are little communities within a country. And if you're living in a place like London, obviously there are city services that work and the embassy uses those city services. 
But in a place like Mogadishu, where there was very spotty electricity, no trash pickup, sometimes there was no water, the embassy had to provide all those services. It was often quite challenging because, as you mentioned, the corruption where people were trying to you know, steal, steal fuel or, you know, get a percentage on a, a particular contract. It was not the glamorous work one often thinks of when one thinks of diplomats. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. This issue of corruption is one that shoots through, it's a through line through a lot of the work that you've done because Mm -hmm. corruption is endemic to countries where civil society rules of law are are tenuous. So you've been exposed to that. We'll talk about that relative to Ukraine, but the logistical know-how you got there was pretty useful when you got to London, which was your next posting. (laughs) Talk about the... uh, Ronald Reagan's f- farewell tour uh, to London in 19, I guess it was in 1989, right? Is that right before he left it, office it, uh, to see? It was 88. Okay. And he uh, he was tired, went back to the embassy and uh, left the ambassador behind. And this was your big breakthrough opportunity, apparently. <laughs> Opportunities come in all sorts of guises. You just have to be ready for them. Uh, yeah, so I had been put in charge of the motorcade, and the ambassador and his wife were supposed to travel back to uh, their home with the Reagans. But um, Ambassador Price, he had a great relationship uh, with Thatcher, uh, Prime Minister Thatcher. He, you know, he he was a serious man, but he he liked to party, and so um, you know they just stayed. And I'm like, hmm, what are we going to do? Because we had rented every vehicle in. London for this enormous uh, delegation that arrived from the United States. And um, so the last vehicle kind of pulled up and it's this uh, sporty little MG. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, Charlie Price was just a great guy. When he comes out, I mean, he's expecting a limousine, right? A black yeah. limousine. And he's like, what's this? <laughs> and of course, I'm the newbie. I had just arrived. I still had, I still had to, you know, get around London with a map. And I said, this is your ride, <laughs> Mr. Ambassador. So he got it. You know, he loved it. Um, and he, he got in and the driver didn't know where Winfield House was, the ambassador's yeah. residence. So I'm in the front seat sort of helping navigate. And yeah, so the rest was uh, was kind of history. Yeah. So you ended up, he figured if you could get him home that night that you could navigate a lot of things and he made you his chief of staff. Well, staff assistant, um, yes. a little, little less uh, exalted. But it, that too was a great training grad for me because you know, I sat in on a lot of his meetings. I read all the papers. In fact, I prepared the papers for him. Um, and, um, you know, of course, the cables, the, the the information from Washington and going from the embassy back to Washington. And that was a very important uh, role for a uh, job for me because I kind of saw the length and the breadth of what the U.S. is working on in the world, but also um, the relationship between um, you know, two strong allies, completely different from what I had done in Mogadishu, completely different. You also were there when the uh, uh, Pan Am flight crashed in yeah. Lockerbie, Scotland, which was a horrible catastrophe. And that also involved uh, you as, and a lot of uh, horrendous logistics that had to follow that. Yeah, uh, Pan Am 103. So that was day two or three of when I started working directly for Ambassador Price. And, um, you know, he he was a political animal and he knew he had to get up to Lockerbie right away. Uh, and um, so he, um, he got the military, the U.S. military, to get him on a flight. And um, he flew up that night because he wanted to send a signal to the U.S., uh, especially the families, uh, that this was important and we were on it. He wanted to send that same message to the UK and also to the terrorists who had done this terrible deed, that we were going to f- follow up on this and we were going to bring them to justice. I'm going to compress a bunch of your bio because I want to take you back to Russia, but you went back to the State Department and you worked uh, there for uh, for several years, first in a place called The Watch, which is uh, kind of a crisis management center, which <laughs> must have been interesting. Uh, a desert storm was going at the time. 
Somalia was disintegrating, uh, and you had some knowledge of that. But ultimately, you wound up back in Moscow in 1993 as a political attache, as it were, in the embassy there. Tell me about the difference between the Russia you arrived in and the Russia that you experienced as a young woman just after college when it was still the Soviet Union. Yeah. So, as you said, when I was there before, it was still the Soviet Union. It was not a free country. It was the stereotype that one thinks of as the Soviet Union. There were lines to buy food, just as we're seeing now in Russia, actually. And, you know, fast forward to 1993, the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991. So I got there two years later. Yeltsin was the president of Russia. And um, there was, you know, there was a lot more freedom. There was a lot more, even though there was, um, the economy was really struggling because they were in this mode of trying to reform the country away from the socialist, the, 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 the communist economic system to, into a, um, a market economy, but they were in the middle of it. And, you know, they're trying to make these changes as they're flying the plane. It was, you know, for ordinary people, it was very ugly. If you were a little bit better off, um, if you um, uh, had um, uh, ha- had some um, possibilities, it was a time of great opportunity. But many people really suffered. There's been a lot of discussion, particularly in light of recent events, about how the, how the U.S. and the West approached Russia during that period, and you were there uh, <laughs> about you know trying to uh, trying to impose a market economy. Uh, but uh, but in some ways creating the conditions for the kleptocracy that uh, that ensued, and then also um, the uh, overture to former Soviet uh, republics to sort of join uh, part of the you know so, uh, countries that were part of the Soviet sphere uh, to from NATO from the EU and so on. But talk to me about those two things and. How how did we handle that period, and what perhaps should we have done differently? So I've thought a lot about this um, because because obviously it's it's been a point of discussion recently that you know is it our fault? And I would say a couple of things, um, notwithstanding that I was really still quite quite junior uh, in the embassy, um, but you know from my perspective, what I saw was that the lion's share of the attention in every respect, was going to Russia. We bent over backwards to uh, include Russia in uh, international institutions because we thought that if Russia was included and had a stake in the international system, it would become a, um, a, you know, a better partner. Um, so, you know, even to the point that we expanded the G7 to the G8 uh, and NATO established a, a special partnership with Russia um, no other country had that at the time. Later on, Ukraine did. And so it, um, from my perspective, we were bending over backwards. Um, the other part about the reform is that, yes, we were trying to help them with, um, you know, helping them develop a democracy, helping them with um, a market economy and so forth. But we were doing that because the Russians requested our assistance. It wasn't like we were imposing it on them. They wanted our help. And so we did the best that we could um, help, you know, in, in, in order to help them. Um, the last point I'd like to make on this uh, is that when we look at world events, um, including, you know, the current crisis uh, in Ukraine brought about by Vladimir Putin's war, I think we often in the U.S. tend to look at it from a U.S. point of view, understandably. But we're not the only actor out there. And Russians, Russia and the Russian leadership had agency in the 1990s and later on and and does today um and i think that in the development of countries it is usually that country itself the various players and stakeholders that have the most agency in terms of how the country is going to develop and i i I think it's easy to point fingers um but i think we also need to look at what the russians themselves are doing yeah i wasn't asking you to defend i i'm not questioning the motivations of the u.s uh, I'm, what I'm questioning is, was there something that we could have done, should have done, that would have prevented, you know, the turn toward Putinism? 
You know, I, I think about it. I mean, I suppose that we could have, so the um, enlargement of NATO taking on additional members, that was demand driven. It's not like we went to Poland and said, hey, you know, we'd really like you to, to be a member. Poland came to us, um, as did other, other countries. Um, so we could have said no. Uh, we could have said uh, we could have let NATO atrophy. The mission was over. The Soviet Union was gone. But it's hard for me to imagine, honestly, that if either of those scenarios had taken place, that Vladimir Putin would have been a pussycat. Um, I think what we've seen in his writings and his actions over the last 30 or 20 years, um, that he has a philosophy. He has a belief in, in a certain kind of history, which is completely ahistorical. And um, he was ready to take action to, um, to, to justify it and to make it so, which is what he's doing in Ukraine now. I think that Vladimir Putin also has agency. And he, he's taking those actions, and I think it's regardless of what NATO did in the 1990s. I will say when President Obama met with him when he was prime minister in 2009, uh, the first hour of a two-hour meeting was a monologue on Putin's part about all the indignities he felt the West had heaped on on Russia and uh, the un- unfairness of it. And uh, so the speech that we heard in public right before this war uh, erupted or when this war erupted was one that, a version of which he was giving in private uh, many years many years earlier so um, you said earlier that we're you know Russia is now returning to the kind of world that you saw when you were uh, uh, when you were a kid is is Russia today uh, as repressive or is it headed in that direction as it was in the Soviet days? I think it's headed in that direction and moving by leaps and bounds. I think, uh, you know, I mean, Putin in the early 2000s, he uh, sidelined the oligarchs and made them, you know, I mean, pretty brutally uh, jailing uh, the one oligarch that uh, stuck his head up and got, tried to get into politics. And the oligarchs have towed the line. He's eliminated his um, perceived uh, political opponents and others. Um, sometimes by assassination, sometimes by long jail terms. Um, he has um, gone after the independent press and um, civil society uh, brutally. And he was doing that, you know, in the 2000s and in the teens, uh, but now it's on steroids. And, um, you know, we're seeing um, people carted off for just demonstrating against the war. And, you know, saying the word war about what is happening in Ukraine is um, you can be um, jailed for 15 years for saying that one word war. Um, I think that, yeah, um, the, the last of the independent media has had to uh, shut down in, in Russia. Um, there's still internet. There's still ways to, for people to communicate and communicate the truth. Um, but it's, um, it, it's becoming harder and it's becoming more dangerous. And I think it was last week that Putin gave a speech that was, again, not different from what he has said in the past, but the passion and the fury um, with which he talked about rooting out basically fifth columnists, people who who are, um, uh, you know, seduced by the promises of the West. Um, You know, we know who those traitors are and we will we will get them. And it almost seemed like a dog whistle to um, other Russians to go after those people. And so I think, um, I don't think uh, he has quite created, uh, recreated the Soviet Union, but it's, it's going in that direction very fast. There are cer- certainly echoes of Stalin in his words and approach. It's the language of fascism. You spent uh, time uh, back in D.C. You helped run the Russia desk. Uh, you got a master's degree. But ultimately, you ended up back in Ukraine uh, in a high-level uh, high, uh, post in the embassy uh, in, the tooth, or in the first decade of the 2000s. What, was your, what were your impressions of Ukraine then? I really liked Ukraine. It's why I went back. It was, you know, it was the beginning of civil society and a free press. 
and people were uh, outspoken about the need to reform and so forth. Um, there was talk about corruption, uh, not like there is now, but, um, you know, uh, an enterprising uh, young uh, reporter, Georgi Gangadze, um, was um, writing articles about um, President Kuchma and, um, and his corruption. President at that time, yeah. Yes, president at that time. Yeah, excuse me. And he um, he was murdered. Uh, his headless body was found in the woods uh, outside of Kiev several months after he um, after he went missing. Um, so there was a lot of hope because I think the Ukrainian people were organizing themselves um, to try to change the trajectory of their country. Uh, but there was also um, still some, uh, you know some repression there. And there was certainly corruption. Although at that time, the U.S. government was not focused on corruption in the way that I think we have, we are now, in the way that we realize that um, corruption is really a cancer in, in a country and can undermine not only that country, but our own foreign policy goals. Um, so those are some of the differences between then and now. You wrote in your in the in this very prescient epilogue of your book was written before this war. It would be foolish to bet against the will of the Ukrainian people. What is it about the Ukrainian people? I mean, I think all of us are sort of incredibly inspired by what we're seeing, even as tragic as it is, the will to fight for their democracy, to fight for their country, to fight for their culture. What is it about the Ukrainian people that invest them with that? They're, they're right across the, the border from Russia. Mm -hmm. What separates out the Ukrainian people in this way? Yeah, uh, that is such a good question. And I think part of it is that the Russians have tried to repress them for centuries and they've always fought back. And now when they are so close to realizing their, um, their objectives of, and you know, when I say democracy or market economy, I mean, ordinary, you know, most people, um, don't talk like that. <laughs> what they say is, you know, I want a good job. I want prospects for my kids. I don't want to have to pay the policeman a bribe uh, to, you know, let me keep on going, even though I haven't done anything. Um, and um, so that's the terms that, that, that people use. And they're so close to getting there. Uh, and now Putin has uh, invaded their country, invaded their homes, put targets on the backs of every Ukrainian and is killing them, I would say indiscriminately, but it is discriminate. I mean, he is targeting civilians and, um, and it's a war crime. And so the, I think we would do the same thing, but the Ukrainians were not, are not going to stand for it and they're not going to let Vladimir Putin get away with it. They will resist. Um, and uh, I'm, they seem to be having some military success. And I hope that that will uh, change the facts on the ground so that, you know, ultimately when there are um, the kind of negotiations that will have to take place to um, broker a ceasefire and hopefully a, a durable peace, uh, that the facts on the ground will be in favor of, of Ukraine. But, you know, the, the Ukrainians, they're like Americans in that they're really unruly and they don't want anybody to tell them what to do. You know, not us and, and certainly not the Russians. And I'll just tell you one more thing. So uh, in the 1800s, there was this poet called uh, Taras Shevchenko. I mean, he was, he was born a slave and he was so talented, both an artist and a poet, uh, that his freedom was, uh, was, was bought and he became a free man. He was the first Ukrainian nationalist, really. And he wrote uh, this line in, in one of his poems um, where he said, fight on and you will prevail. And that is a line that every school child knows and every Ukrainian knows. And I think that's what we're seeing today. You had a series of ambassadorships uh, in Kyrgyzstan, in Armenia, in the region. Uh, and then ultimately you went back to Ukraine. And this issue of corruption became central to your, uh, to your work. Why? Well, the, uh, in 2014, before I went to Ukraine, uh, there was um, uh, an event called the Revolution of Dignity, which um, the idea that every, uh, so it came about because uh, President Yanukovych, who was the pro-Russian president, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, was basically bullied by um, Putin into turning his back on the EU. And so a bunch of uh, 
college students in November of 2013, went out to the square and demonstrated. Yanukovych's forces cracked down. They called it the Revolution of Dignity because what they wanted was for each person in Ukraine to be treated with dignity, the same dignity you would treat a president. And what they meant by that is we want one rule, one law for everybody. So when President Poroshenko was elected president in June, that was obviously a huge part of his plank. And um, they asked not only us, but the rest of the international community, the international institutions to help them fight corruption in governmental institutions and more broadly. And you identified the prosecutor, the state prosecutor, Lusenko, as a problem in this regard. He was a problem. He came um, into office uh, promising to do several things, uh, that he would reform his... Um, uh, so the, 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 the prosecutor is uh, similar to our attorney general, mm-hmm. so a hugely important position. And it was riddled with corruption where, uh, you know, you would, you would pay a prosecutor in that um, uh, domain uh, to, um, you know, lose a court case against you. Or alternatively, if you have uh, a business rivalry, you would pay a prosecutor to lodge a case against your business opponent. It was incredibly corrupt, and people wanted to put a stop to it. And um, he really made no progress on any of those issues. And we were working with him and trying to encourage him to do what he said (laughs) from the outset he was going to do. Those were his goals. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Let's talk about what happened to you. Uh, as a, you, you, you talked before about being a by-the-books uh, diplomat, and suddenly you found yourself a target. How did that happen? Why did it happen, do you think? Well, I knew that Lutsenko uh, wasn't happy <laughs> with the U.S. government and you know me as the uh, emissary pushing on on corruption and encouraging him to um to do reforms uh he also had some other personal grudges against me so i knew that um what i didn't know of course is that um rudy giuliani um former mayor of new york and the president's personal lawyer um was looking for dirt on uh, joe biden and on his son hunter this was in 2018 when this probably became most uh you know, when that operation began, was there a was there a lessening of concern about corruption before that? Did the State Department discourage you from pushing? Not at all. No, this was our official policy, and it was the official policy of the Ukrainian government too. Mm-hmm. You never eradicate corruption, of course, but you can try to manage it and hold people accountable. But setting up the institutions that will um, help you do that and reforming other institutions. I mean, that is the work of generations. So there was still a lot of work to do, primarily by the Ukrainians. The reason 2018 is important is because that's when Biden began to seriously surface. And he was considered by the Republicans uh, the most uh, potentially potent uh, opponent for uh, the president. So obviously, this was a concern uh, to Giuliani and his political, the the president's political group. Um, How did you evaluate these? Uh, uh, the Hunter Biden issue. Uh, I mean, how did that come across your desk? What did you think about it when you saw it emerge? I was aware of it because when I was preparing for my confirmation hearing, there was a question and answer. You know, what about Hunter Biden's um, being on the board of this energy company in uh, right. in Ukraine? Mm-hmm. And the answer was, um, I would refer you to the vice president's office for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on a you know, honestly, when I arrived in Ukraine, uh, I was drinking from the fire hose. There were lots of big issues that I was dealing with. And, you know, perhaps incorrectly, I didn't think this was, you know, uh, one that I was going to be diving into or needed to dive into. And then pretty quickly after that, of course, um, you know, Biden was out of office. Um, and so any conflict of interest or perception of conflict of interest um, presumably was past history. Um, but then it all came roaring back when, as you noted, um, Biden uh, started surfacing as a potential um, presidential uh, opponent to President Trump. 
Mm-hmm. I, I should ask, um, I mean, did you view it as a conflict of interest? I think there's certainly the perception of a conflict of interest. Um, I'm unaware of anything that would have needed an actual mm-hmm. conflict of interest. But, you know, I also have not, you know, dug deeply into this issue. And you start getting this r- rumbling from various places that you were being targeted. And at first it was covert kind of stuff. And then it became quite overt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, in, in the beginning when I was, you know, people were whispering to me and, you know, first it was just this miasma. I mean, it's like, oh my God, what's going on here? Um, and then it became more and more specific in February and I would go back to Washington, but it was, you know, my part of Washington, the career people in Washington. And they're like, no worries. You're doing what we want you to do. Keep on going. And um, so that's what I did. And then in- um, we, should, we should, but let me just interrupt you and say, we should point out the the key here was- you pushed for the removal of this prosecutor, and he, in turn, seemed like an agent who was willing, perhaps, to pursue these this scheme with Giuliani. Is that a fair? No, I, I, I never pushed for his removal. Uh, I just pushed for him to do what he said he was going to do. Mm-hmm. But he viewed you as a, an obstacle to... He viewed me as an obstacle. He felt I was insufficiently supportive. He wanted to come to the U.S. and meet with the attorney general, head of the FBI, et cetera, et cetera. And I would say what are you going to talk about? <laughs> and, you know, Litsenko, the prosecutor, who was very open that he wanted to run for president. And I think he wanted, you know, that photo of him with prominent Americans as kind of the seal of approval for his, I mean, that's, I imagine what he would have said um, for his campaign. And, you know, ambassadors are all about getting representatives of the country they're in um, meetings in Washington, right. but we want them to be useful and, yeah, you know, actually right. move the dial. Uh, yeah. So he 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 found that unfair and unwarranted on my part, and so he and you know Giuliani had um, had this alliance where um, I think part of it for uh, uh, Lutsenko was uh, getting rid of me, and in, in return he did as, uh, some interviews with the Hill, um, cooking up um, all sorts of lies basically about me and um, and you know throwing dirt on the Bidens. How did you react to all of this? Because you're not a politician. Uh, You haven't been in politics. This is more in my world than your world, that things like this uh, happen where people become the uh, subject of of smear campaigns and so on. How did you react? I asked you this earlier, uh, you know, uh, as someone who kind of had the sort of plan for the uh, worst and hope for the best and things could Take a bit. I mean, how did you emotionally react to this? I just tried to compartmentalize. Um, and I just kept on hoping that it was going to go away because, you know, the official policy is what I was doing. The rest of it was a pack of lies. But when the Hill articles came out in mid-March, when President Trump retweeted it, when Fox News uh, in a chorus kind of focused on, on me and uh, the need to remove me. It was pretty clear. I mean, it felt like a campaign, and I think it was a campaign to get rid of me. And Giuliani also had tried to get somebody into the United States, frankly, on false pretenses. And he was a problematical person. And Giuliani, in January of 2019, went to the White House and said, you know, that Ambassador Ivanovich, um, she's stopping this guy from coming to the U.S. because he's going to talk to me about corruption at the embassy, including her corruption. Mm. And I hear this from Washington. I had, I had told Washington that the consular section had, um, you know, put a flag on, on this case because he was a prominent individual. Um, but, um, and then, then this, this uh, emerged, which was uh, interesting to say the least. You spent your career fighting corruption and now you have these guys accusing you of corruption. Yeah, it was Orwellian. I mean, every, you know, black was white, you know, everything was upside down. And I still tried to compartmentalize, uh, you know, to do my job the way I was supposed to be doing it um, and hope that this other stuff was going to go away because there was no basis to it. And you, you were removed. And shortly after you were removed, there was this fateful phone call in which uh, Trump talked to Zelensky and you came up in this phone call you would learn uh, later. And the president mm-hmm. said uh, you were uh, b- bad news, that 
you were going to go through some things. When that tape surfaced, and I want to ask you about Zelensky as well, but when that tape surfaced, what was your reaction? Well, my physical reaction, according to somebody who was in the room with me, was that I went absolutely pale when I read it. Because, I mean, Trump had already had me fired and removed from my job as ambassador. I was under a cloud of these allegations um, by people around the president that I was corrupt, disloyal, etc. And now the president of the United States is saying that I'm going to go through some things. And I didn't know what that meant, but I knew it wasn't anything good. And I was imagining that, you know, maybe they were going to charge me with something. Maybe there was going to be an investigation because, I mean, what did it mean? Maybe they were going to take away my pension because I was talking about retiring at that time. So it was a frightening time. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You also, I said you spent a lot of time fighting corruption. You also spent a lot of time trying to promote democracy against autocracy. Um, that must have, it must have struck you at the time that this has reverberations of autocracy when the president says she's going to go through some things. Yeah. There's a, so I'm an optimist about America, but um, there is no question that we have a number of challenges uh, in terms of our democracy, and we need to, you know, tend and defend it uh, to uh, in order to preserve it. I mean, there's no question. And Trump, I, I hope, was the culmination of that and that we're going to be turning around. But in terms of his scapegoating of minorities um, and other others, uh, in terms of uh, the targeting of the media the way he, he did, the hollowing out of institutions that were serving him. Uh, I, um, you know, there are many of the hallmarks of, of autocracy, and uh, we need, each one of us needs to do our part to strengthen our democracy. You ultimately uh, had to uh, testify, were asked to testify before the impeachment committee, and you, you described this in, in, in some detail about the ordeal of that and your concerns about that. Your mom became ill during this period, and you assign the sort of grief associated with the, or the stress associated with what you were going through uh, to her illness. So you're dealing with the pressures of this impeachment inquiry and being the, the focus of so much attention. And your mom, who you describe as your best friend, is mortally ill at the time. How'd you cope with all of that? Well, you know, I mean, it's, I wrote about it, but it's still really hard to talk about. But, you know, I really leaned on, you know, mostly my brother, um, but also uh, other family and friends. And, um, you know, you, you do the best you can. I tried to compartmentalize a little bit you know, try to be fully present for my mom when I was with her and fully present, you know, with all of those things that were going on with the impeachment inquiry. Um, yeah, it didn't feel like I was either being the kind of daughter I wanted to be or, you know, the kind of witness that I needed to be. Was, I mean, the, it, it would be natural, although not fair to you, uh, for to feel some guilt about putting her through that. That must have been part of what you were coping with as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, my mom, I took my mom to the emergency room two days after the transcript of the perfect phone call between Zelensky and Trump was released, one day after the whistleblower complaint um, came out. And the next day, you know, I took her to the emergency ward and she never came home. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a direct... <laughs> A direct line. And when I asked the doctors, uh, they, you know, they certainly weren't going to say it in those words, but they said, you know, yeah, stress, stress does this to people. And you, uh, you, you say you sought therapy uh, for this. What did you learn from that? Well, that I was stronger than I thought I was. And, and that, that there was going to be a future after the impeachment inquiry. You know, because it was hard for me to imagine that. Um, and, um, you know, my therapist tried to get me imagining what, what would that look like? What would your world look like? Because, you know, after the spring, I, I thought, you know, am I ever even going to be able to get a job again? Um, you know, am I employable? 
So, um, you know, stronger and better than, um, than, you know, the original model. <laughs> That's what I got out of therapy. Were you surprised when the impeachment went the way it did? Not really, um, because as we've alluded to, there's a very divided nation and Washington is um, divide, very divided politically. And, you know, seeing the Republicans make excuses uh, for President Trump basically selling out our national security, selling out his office for a personal political favor. I can't imagine if a Democrat had done the same thing that the Republicans would have been so forgiving. But I think it was all along party lines, except in the end, Mitt Romney. Obviously, the president was emboldened by his uh, totally. acquittal. Now, you know, he's, he's still the front runner in 2024. What, are the, what does that mean to you? What, what are the stakes as far as you're concerned of the potential of another Trump presidency? Yeah, well, it concerns me. The possibility concerns me. And I'll tell you, it, it concerns our allies as well. Um, they don't want to go back to that. Um, and, you know, imagine, you know, if Trump were president right now, uh, how he would be leading the country and the world. I mean, he wouldn't be. Um, and uh, I, it, it gives me great concern, which is why I think, again, each one of us has to do what we can to strengthen our democracy. And I think part of that also is going to be the January 6th committee. Um, I'm hoping that, uh, I mean, I understand that they're going to have um, witnesses coming up in April. And I'm hoping that, um, you know, further uh, um, shining the light on that conspiracy uh, with regard to the elections and then the January 6th uh, insurrection, I'm hoping that that will help to convince Republicans that that they need to rethink their uh, allegiance to the former president and to rethink their brand. I have to ask you about Zelensky. You know, he did sort of a he kind of went along with Trump in that phone call. It appeared as if he was trying to mollify uh, <laughs> Trump. But are you surprised you got you'd got to know him? I won't ask you about your reaction to that, uh, but you got to know him. Are you surprised by how he has emerged here uh, in this kind of Churchillian way? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's remarkable. He goes from being comedian to being president to being the Winston Churchill of our times. I, I think that he has captured the moment and the message and, and, and the substance of what needs to happen, what, what you need to be to be a wartime leader. He has shown unparalleled courage and he is in his communication he's reflecting the spirit of the ukrainian people but he's also binding them together and giving them purpose and inspiring them as he inspi is inspiring frankly all of us around the world it's remarkable president is on his way to brussels right now uh mm -hmm. for a, a f what could be a fateful uh nato meeting nato's, NATO's obviously strengthened uh, been strengthened by all of this, not the intent that Putin, not the result Putin hoped for. Uh, what should they be doing? What what more should they be doing? Uh, should there be a no-fly zone? Should they be supplying planes uh, to Ukraine? And what are the what are the uh, what are there lines that that now must be crossed that the president has been reluctant to cross that NATO has been reluctant to cross? So, you know, these are the questions of the moment, aren't they? And um, I have to say that I'm grateful that Joe Biden is president because I think he has, you know, the right set of experience for this particular challenge. Uh, and he is um, restrained and um, mature and um, thoughtful about how we support Ukraine, deter Russia, but not, um, uh, we don't like go over a line that would, broaden the war. And that is a very narrow lane to try to navigate. Um, and so far, we've done it uh, well, I, I think. And I think Europe agrees because Europe is following Biden's lead. So I think that's why this this NATO meeting, and of course, there's also a meeting with the European Council, with the G7, and then he's going on to Poland. That's why these meetings are so important. This is the world recognizing that we need to be together. We need to show that solidarity. Um, I think there's going to be, uh, I'm guessing uh, that uh, they're going to look at force posture issues and um, perhaps continue to strengthen the eastern flank of NATO and Poland and the other uh, littoral countries. And, um, you know, how do we continue to deter Russia? And there's been some hinting that there are going to be stronger sanctions 
deployed once again. Um, I'm hoping that there will also be uh, a continue, a, another package of um, security and other assistance for Ukraine because Ukraine is using what we've given them, what we sent them to good effect. And so even though we've given them a lot, we need to keep on backfilling um, because we, we need Ukraine to win. But the other thing that I hope will be addressed either in Brussels or when the president goes to Poland is the humanitarian issue, the refugee crisis. What more is the U.S. going to do here? Can we open up um, the U.S. to um, to Ukrainian refugees? And how can we support, um, you know, the countries in Europe that are absorbing some of these refugees? But also the far greater humanitarian crisis is right in Kiev, uh, in, in Ukraine. And it's even harder to provide assistance there, but we really... We really need to do it. You must be speaking from a very personal perspective in that regard, given uh, given your history. What would you tell a president about Putin's mindset based on what you see? As an expert, I mean, you, 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 you've been observing him for two decades. Has he changed and how far is he willing to go, do you think? Well, I think what we're seeing, uh, we're already seeing kind of the Grozny Syria um, model. And uh, with, you know, the use just of, leveling cities and yeah, leveling cities. Exactly. Um, and, you know, killing civilians um, indiscriminately or discriminately. Um, you know, will he use CW, BW, uh, the chem- chemical weapons, biological weapons? Would he use a nuclear, uh, a tactical nuke? He doesn't seem to have any restraints on him in terms of what he wants to do. And as I'm sure you're aware, uh, nuclear weapons are part of the Russian um, military doctrine. It's another one of the weapons that uh, they can use if, if they need to use. You know, I think if they need to use it or they feel they need to use it. And we just heard um, Putin's spokesperson, I think it was yesterday or the yes. day before. Refused to rule it out, yeah. Exactly. So I think it's possible. And I think the, the really tricky thing is there's, there doesn't seem to be anybody around him who can reason with him. Uh, he's very successfully sort of gotten rid of anybody who could be uh, a counter or could speak truth to power. And I think that is really worrisome because one of the things that um, while there was great risk in taking action, um, you know, possibly, uh, you know, the Russians don't want a no-fly zone. And if we, uh, if we either instituted one or had helped the Ukrainians do that, would that be escalatory? Well, the first thing is, Putin is the one who escalated. He's the one who has invaded. And we need to keep that in mind all the time. Um, but when we take auction, uh, options off the table, I'm not saying we need to institute them, but when we take options off the table, we see it as being um, that we are restrained and that we are um, trying not to broaden an already terrible war. I'm not sure that's how Putin sees it. I think that he is a man who only understands strength, and I think he sees that as um, perhaps weakness. And so there is a danger to, to taking action, but when dealing with somebody like Vladimir Putin, there's also a danger uh, or, and a risk to not robustly responding to what he's doing. And if, if he's not stopped now, I think there'll be a little adjustment period, and then he'll go for the rest of what he wants. Which is Eastern, uh, other, other countries of Eastern Europe, reassembling the Russian Empire. Yeah, Russian Empire, former Soviet Union. i got to let you go, but I, I just want to ask you, how does this end? How do you see this ending? I don't see a way that Russia can win permanently. Russia, you know, so my hope is that the Ukrainians prevail militarily. And we're seeing, you know, some reason to hope. Uh, and we need to keep on helping them do that. Uh, because this is a war of tyranny versus democracy. And if tyranny wins, if Russia wins, that will make it a more dangerous uh, world for us. But just with regard to Ukraine, maybe Russia prevails militarily, but it will be an occupation because the Ukrainians will resist. There will be a guerrilla war for sure. And there will be civil disobedience. Ukrainians have um, a lot of snipers, and they will get more. And I would not want to be the Russian occupier walking down a street. And I would not want to be a Russian soldier going into a cafe, because I'm not sure what they'd be serving me. 
And I would not want to get into a car that was serviced by a Ukrainian mechanic. The Ukrainians will resist. And in the end, the price will be too high for Russia. But it will come at a great price. I mean, the Ukrainians are paying in blood now. And I hope that they can prevail militarily so that we can get to the peace talks. Is there a negotiated settlement that could be made that would be satisfactory to both Zelensky and uh, and the Ukrainians and, and Putin? I mean, the short answer is yes. Wars always end in some sort of a settlement. The question is, you know, is it a good settlement? Because, in, um, you know, we've all seen peace treaties that that didn't actually satisfy the parties. And so they go back to war. The other thing um, that you sort of alluded to, but just to make it clear, um, on the Russian side, whatever the terms are, just has to be acceptable to, to one man. On the Ukrainian side, Ukraine, for all its faults, it's a democracy. And he, you know, he will have to present whatever that agreement is to the Ukrainian people. He's even said that they would have a referendum on it. And um, I will just tell you that the Ukrainians I'm in touch with, there has been a hardening of attitude, as you would expect, when their children are being killed, when their grandparents are, are, are being killed. Um, and so uh, I think it will, it will be very much of um, a, a diplomatic um, challenge to find that right formulation. Well, let's all hope and pray for a just and swift resolution. Yeah. Uh, swift seems out of the, the question. Just is uh, unnegotiable. So, Ambassador, it is an honor to, uh, to be with you. And I, th- I just want to say, as we finish, thank you for your service to this country. Thank you. I appreciate it. I know millions of others do. And uh, we are lucky to have had you in the service of our country. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for your service. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.